the group that they're using to do their background checks on the same website, she sells jams and jellies out of her house. Oh, oh. Nana, Nana's uh, background check. Right. Really, the reality is a single source, right, isn't the optimum. They were dumbfounded. They were like, we did a background check that was required by law, and not once, but twice it failed. And now, the safety zone. Mike, come to a new podcast, and we have a kind of a thing that we're going to start doing off and on, not every session, but we got a listener that emailed in with a really great question that we want to take part of our episode today to answer. And and they were asking about restraining orders and how when a, a spouse has a restraining order with the other spouse and how that works when it comes to churches and, and probably schools where the dad or if it's the mom, either one wants to come and pick up the child at church. And of course, the church looks at it as the parent, same with the school. Can we touch upon that this morning and yeah. give them an answer? No, that's a great question. If we look at both church and ministry or a school, any place that has custody or care of our children, we're starting to see more and more. We build a safe visitor system, which is a visitor management system. It allows you to check in and out. We have a lot of schools, more churches and ministry starting to use it. But I think the key component of that program is the excluded parties list. And I've noticed on the church ministry side, there are check-in systems. We've gone to a couple different churches over the years when we had our children were younger and had a check-in system. Most of them were just kind of, I walk up, I click a couple buttons or I put a code in, it prints off a little sticker to put them on the back of our children and kind of match them up when we come to pick them up. What I think was missing and what I think may continue to be missing, we're actually exploring this right now, but what I think may be missing in a lot of these programs is a tool by which you can add in exclusions, people that aren't allowed, or if you had a restraining order, a custody issue. So for example, With our large public schools that are using Safe Visitor, we have a student check-in, check-out. So if you come in to check a child out for early dismissal, the school enters the child's name in our Safe Visitor system. It does a, a query. We integrate it with their student data system, or on the church side, it could be their church management system. And so it does a query, and it pulls back, and it says, hey, here's a list of approved parent or guardians. But it also pulls back and will give you a red X next to anybody that's not allowed to have contact with that child. So we can go in in those situations and enter information based on a disclosure from a parent, here's a custody order, or there's been a threat directed at our child. And now we can electronically flag them as opposed to just kind of telling everybody in the volunteer children's ring, hey, that just poses a lot of risk that it'll fall through the cracks. So the electronic management of that is very critical. And if you look at really kind of the premise behind a lot of this, the church 
my, my former church before we moved. And actually, Don, who leads our safe ministry, was the senior pastor there. And we had a relationship with a Christian domestic violence shelter in the community. And we would actually bus a lot of the women out of shelter with their children to church each Sunday morning. And so one of the Mm. things that I had talked through with our leadership team or administrative team was awesome, but it's bringing a lot of risk to our church and we need to be prepared for this. And I said, my experience when I started the domestic violence unit in Nashville, Tennessee, one of the things we found is the better job that we did of helping women and children protect themselves, get into shelter, then the abuser we would see a lot of stalking behavior because now they yes. couldn't find them. They didn't, yes. didn't know where the shelters were at. Right. And yes. so we would see an increase in the workplace. They were showing up at work. I had one guy that would just yes. really just cruise the streets around her workplace because he knew she had to go mm-hmm. to work. She had to be paid. Right. And if he could intercept her, around the workplace. Well, think about it. They get wind that they're all going to a certain church, you know, on a Sunday morning. Now, all of a sudden she signs them in, she goes into service. And now what's the perfect opportunity? And children are pawns in these relationships. They really are. Very dangerous situation for children when they're caught in these domestic violence homes. Yes. And you know, that reminds me of the Sutherland Springs, Texas church that, of course, there were so many red flags there. The system's not talking to the systems, as you know well, but that was a domestic violence issue of the husband going in. And of course, it was it was also the extended family was mad at the, the parents because of taking in, they were separated, taking in his wife. Now, in that case, of course, came in with a gun, not, not trying to grab the children, but I think it's an important subject, I, and I think in some respects, when you have a small church, I had a former church that was was small. It was under three hundred, maybe two hundred that that came every week. So you you have certain people that volunteer in the children's ministry that are there all the time, and so maybe the the spouse can alert the pastoral team and the volunteers and etc. But when you've got a a bigger church, there's a big rotation on their volunteer status, so it makes sense that. This has to be a, within the system and not just verbally told. And at the heart of that, what I've talked about for 25 years when I work with communities on domestic violence, I said your biggest barrier to protecting anybody trapped in a home with domestic violence, your biggest barrier out of the gate is getting them to trust you because they've been programmed to believe nobody will care. They've been beaten down by this abuser. Yeah, go tell the pastor. Let me tell you what the pastor's going to say. He's going to tell you to obey your husband. Or yeah, see what happened the last time the cops came here? They told you never call again because this is a civil matter. It's not a domestic violence. It's not a crime. And so they get programmed to believe multiple things. One, keep your mouth shut. Two, It's not happening to anybody else. And then thirdly, it's embarrassing. And so if you get to the point where even I feel like I got to tell somebody, then you get all this pressure from society that says, oh my gosh, if I tell somebody at church, who are they going to tell? Are they going to hold this in confidence? It's a big issue. And so it's not a matter of just saying, we're going to create a database. We have to promote it within our congregation or employees that this is a safe place to disclose. This happened. We talk about active shooter and everybody wants to focus on active shooter and stranger. 
school, Sutherland, just like you're talking about, these are not, there's always something that connects it back at some point, generally. That just random occurring violence is very, very unlikely. Whenever I see one of these events like this, I am just waiting and sifting through data, looking for the connector, Mm -hmm. because there's almost always something that Always had been a red flag. Red flag, some relationship. It's not just he comes in this particular church on Sunday morning and opens fire. That can happen, but that was would really be rare. There's usually some precipitator um, and some connection to somebody there. Mm -hmm. A grievance. This happened in San Bernardino, California several years ago where she was a school teacher and he was a horribly violent. I believe he was a boyfriend. They weren't married but weren't using any kind of system at the front desk. He comes in. What's he say? Hey, I want to go by Katie's room. You know, I don't remember her name. And he walks in the room, shoots, kills her, shoots, kills a student, shoots and wounds another student. So we work for companies for 25 years trying to get them to understand the danger that domestic violence poses to them. And a lot of times we do all these background checks, hundreds of thousands of them a month. And for people to understand when you see that on a background check, to understand what that crime is and what that crime means. And if there's a conviction, it is so hard to get a conviction for domestic violence. There are so many barriers to that. And so a lot of times we look at that and go, oh, it's a domestic violence misdemeanor conviction. Hmm. It's a much more than that. And so this is a crime that can have far reaching consequences for organizations that are taking care of kids. Yes. And perfect segue because we wanted to talk today really about background checks and the education of them because really, I mean, I can go and Google, right? And and I can pull up all sorts of different things and pay for a background check. But you see often, right, that there's not a lot of parameters around it. And the concern is with organizations and, of course, with churches getting the most cost effective, but not understanding what differences there are in background checks. And there's a lot of background checks out there, right, that really don't give you a lot of information. Yeah, actually, because there are so many background check companies, I almost didn't enter this space. I was being prodded along 16 years ago because a couple public schools were pushing me to help them with background checks. And I'm like everybody else, right? And this was kind of when Google was kind of new, <laughs> but I went and did an internet search and I thought, man, there's a million background check companies. No, thank you. I'm not going to get into that. Well, then one of these large school districts hired two sex offenders and they were on the evening news. They were on the front page of the Indianapolis Star and they were they were dumbfounded. They were like, we did a background check that was required by law and not once, but twice it failed in the last month. And we have two sex offenders in our school as employees. And I remember when I saw that, I was like, how can that possibly be? Mm. Well, when I started getting into the research and digging into it, I found out very quickly, very easy because there's no, when somebody says we're doing a background check, that means nothing to me. There is no definition of a background check. That could be a cheap database search. Well, let me tell you what, there's probably, I bet there's 25 or 30 criminal, where they call them national criminal databases, 
that are put together by private companies in the U.S., the variance in data across yeah. those different providers is enormous. But none of them, not even the FBI, but a church and ministry is not going to get access to the FBI right. unless they have a child care. And, and, but even the FBI database, not even close to being complete. Mm. No database. I don't care what you get access to. None of them, if you're using only a database, I can 100% tell you right now, you're setting yourself up for failure because they are they are terribly incomplete and they'll have a high failure rate even with sex offenders. The other problem is there's typically no requirement for who can do a background check. One of our largest partners, International Volunteer Organization, when they moved to us in one region of the country down south, a lot of their member organizations were like, no, we want to keep using the, the provider we're using. We like them. Well, the head of risk management for this large international organization did some research and she called me one day and she goes, you're not going to believe this. The group that they're using to do their background checks on the same website, she sells jams and jellies out of her house. Oh, <laughs> Nana, Nana's uh, background check. But she, <laughs> right. But she was also bringing in your personal data yeah, into her scary. house with no, right, and no way to manage the security of it. So there's no regulation, I'm assuming, on, on these things? Because that's a little frightening to think of someone getting all this information, or at least on you. Yeah. Generally speaking, for a volunteer, no regulations. It is the Wild West, and that's why you have all these providers out there. It doesn't matter if they're part of a national association. We are also. They, they've had this accreditation program for years, which we're going through the accreditation program, but there are organizations that have been accredited for a long time. They're selling junk just like they were before they got accredited. So there is no standard of care. The federal law if you're doing this for employment purposes, the federal law has some specific requirements as you deal with potential employees, but that is not based on the quality of the background check. It's based on how you handle the negative information when it comes back. More protections for you, the consumer. Mm. I have to give you a copy of the report. You have a right to dispute it, but it doesn't say I have to use this level of background check and these types of solutions to create a really solid comprehensive report. It's more about making sure you don't misalign somebody with a background check. Occasionally on the school side, the state will set mandates or requirements, you know, like Indiana has 30 or 35 crimes. Some of them of which you've been convicted, you cannot work in a school. Others, there has to be a period of time post-conviction before you would be eligible. But generally speaking, on the church ministry side, all things go. Right. <laughs> and anybody can sell you that information free for all. You got it. So it becomes ease of use and cheapest is what a lot of them chase. Again, thinking of Sutherland Springs and issue there where they didn't have the the man that did that shooting, which was a connected to a domestic violence and a grievance with his wife being separated and at the parents' military background. And the military hadn't put when he got his gun, and I know this is a different issue, but he hadn't been put into the system yet. And that kind of brought up a lot of dialogue because there are 
several different kinds of background checks, but really the reality is a single source, right, isn't the optimum because you really have several different jurisdictions or several different databases that you need to interconnect a state level, I, I assume, and the federal level. And can you talk a little bit about that? Yep. You bring up really the foundational problem with background checks as it relates to Sutherland is it illustrates that's the FBI database, right? And and he was not in there. Why? Because the branch of the military that had responsibility for him had not put him in there. That's the same issue the FBI yeah. deals with all the time. It's not the FBI. Right. It is the states or the organizations required to send that information or not Sending. sending it. And I know these things because we had an advisory board member for a long time that used to lead the criminal records division of a state police division. Mm. And he would tell me, he said, I can tell you states where they go in and purge data to clean up their database or they get rid of certain crimes. And But it, it, you're right. It comes to a checks and balance. What I learned 16 years ago when I reviewed the large public school that hired the sex offenders they were using a single source. So if that single source fails, you're in trouble. Mm. Well, I'm not a big fan of single source. We have two offices. Our company is a technology, internet-based company. Well, what can we not live without every day? If the internet goes down, I can't have people twiddling their thumbs. So it's redundancy. I have to have a backup. So if one fails, it right. kicks over and we keep on working. Right. That's what we built with the background screening process. You have multiple checks and balances. We want to identify you. I'll be honest with you. Yesterday, Don and I were talking about a specific situation and we went on a couple paraministry sites and then one site where it's an organization very well known and they do a lot of like child abuse audits mm -hmm. and help churches with child abuse related issues. And when I looked at their package and I look at some of these paraministry packages that they're promoting to churches, and these are groups that churches trust almost without exception, yeah. like brand that is mm -hmm. trusted, but they have no idea what they're doing with background checks. And if I look at two of my show, Don, yesterday, they do not have any tool in their like level one, level two type packages to identify anybody. So I could type my name in as whatever. I could put it on a piece of paper. I can lie to you. I can leave off other names I've been known by. What if I just got married last week mm. and my name changed? And I even show you my driver's license and you say, okay, that's your name. Well, guess what? Two weeks ago, it was something else. And I've got a criminal history seven miles long. Without a tool to uncover that, yeah. you're missing lots of criminal information. So we want to identify, we want to run them through a national database. I'm not saying we don't use the database. They're a solution, not a background screening program. So we'll run it through. We'll run it through the national sex offender. We'll search at the county level. We also have some tools we just rolled out for church ministry and volunteer groups where we we have access now to arrest data from about 93% of the jails across the United States. So about 10 wow. years worth of data. We can pop that database and find things that happen way outside of where they live or work. And then the other thing that I see with volunteer groups and churches in particular, they're not running federal court searches. And they're like, well, why would I run a federal if I'm doing a national? Isn't that the same thing? No, it's not. 
you've got state courts. And so 90% of crimes in the United States, if I rob a a market or domestic violence, that's a crime against the state. What happens in a county, that's where it's prosecuted. That's where the official record's at. But then you have federal crimes, FBI, DEA, Secret Service. So in the past, these were white collar crimes typically. Well, now it's a lot of drug related. You have a lot of child solicitation over the internet, anything that crosses a state line or internet or sent through the mail. And if you're not checking those federal district courts, you're again running the risk of missing something. So we've audited. I I could talk for the next 24 hours about this because we've spent so much time auditing a lot of the background check programs that are being promoted to church and ministry, and they simply are not effective. And you know what's sad, Melinda, that you can do it correctly. We actually have churches that are move over every day from another program. And not only do we put them on a a very comprehensive checks and balance program, sometimes it's the same price. Sometimes it's less money than what they were paying for the cheapest stuff that's being marketed to them. That to me is heartbreaking, to be quite frank, because A, of course, as believers, we want our churches to thrive. We want our kids to be safe as a mom. And now my daughter's a teen now, but even with teens, you have youth groups. And and again, yes, it's sad to worry about all these things, but you know, we have to be adults and recognize that this is the reality of our culture. And it's far, far better to be aware and to take the preventive measures than to have something happen. And Mike, we've talked about this. It takes one time, one time for something to happen that can not only destroy if it's a child, if it's a, a woman, you know, a domestic violence case, whatever the case may be, even a pastor, a failure on the pastor's end. The reality is it only takes once of, of, of an incident to take place to destroy people's lives, to put scars on a child's life, and to destroy that ministry. And ultimately, the witness of Christ, where people look and think, I remember when the Catholic Church, you know, this was prevalent, and we were, well, over there, you know, how we kind of be, and not saying that in a derogatory sense, but kind of, they're not set up well, or making all of our assessments, and yet we're having the same thing. And so the reality of just needing to take those preventive measures. And really for the executive pastor or whoever the leader is, they need to be able to get this knowledge. And I think that's what breaks my heart is that it's not willfully per se going, they're trusting an organization and they're not getting the protection that they need. In this current climate with COVID-19, can you imagine a scenario where church ministry or any organization is not tightening their fiscal belt. I am. Um, Our company, we're all doing it and we're still scaling. But I tell you what, I cut out some programs that were not really necessary at this moment because I want to protect my employees. I've got a duty and an obligation to protect the people that work for me. And so I cut these programs out. Church and ministry have to be doing the same thing. They've been virtual. Well, even if you do online giving, their their money's got to be down. And so 
you can't cut this. When people are talking about New York City cutting a billion dollars out of police funding, why do you start with that? We're already seeing what's happening. I, there. I don't want to get into that debate because I'm not being political here. I'm just saying you don't cut safety and security first. Right. So if I'm a church and ministry, I had breakfast earlier this week, and I think I shared this with you offline. But for listeners, we had breakfast. He's a former executive pastor for 25 years, really fast scaling, multi-campus church. And one of the things he said in breakfast, he said, there's two things that'll bring down a ministry. Basically a moral issue with the pastor. We can't really help you there. But he said, the second thing is if something happens to a child, that's where we can help. And so why we would even think about cutting corners with children when it not only the child, and that's where I'll focus, just like I on the police side, when I see what's happening in New York and I see a, a one-year-old child in a poor neighborhood killed in a stroller, why are we not blowing up the streets over that? That breaks my heart. Yeah. That's what we're trying to stop. That's not political. That's a baby that got killed for no reason. Little we're victim. cutting safety and security and we're playing politics and people are dying because of it. Well, in the church setting, a child gets harmed. It may push them away from Christ completely for the rest of their life. It's going to have a lasting impact throughout their life, yeah. even if they don't lose their faith. It's going to impact them and relationships and how they trust. And so not even going to, it's going to hurt my ministry because maybe that sounds self-serving. Right. But the end result is if I got children in your church, and I've told my pastor this years ago on an elder board, I think I've joked on here before, I'll listen to bad sermons, but man, something happens with a kid, I'm gone. Mm -hmm. You better take care of my kids in the back end. And so we can't cut corners yeah. on these background checks. And I have a heart for the church because they don't get it. How right. could you? I didn't understand background well, checks when I started this company. I was just going to say, I mean, they're pastors. That's not their, I mean, even for me, I'm learning a lot knowing you, but it can be overwhelming for them. And it breaks my heart that people they're going to, to trust, to handle that, right? Because they're not, pastors aren't experts on this. They're not being taken care of in the way that they should. And, and I think that's a big issue. And in fact, I think we're, going to talk about that on another podcast. Just you do a lot of educational outreach. Sometimes it's webinars, church camp, but just really being able to give that information to an executive team at the church or the church decision makers, which doesn't always have to be the senior pastor in the larger churches. So, but getting that information so that they can do their due diligence to make sure they're getting what they need. I guarantee you, if you talk to me, you talk to Don, you talk to any of our team members they're more like school teachers than they are salespeople. We have no sales team. I don't have anybody that I call a salesman because if you're a pure salesman, you don't really work well in our culture. We're educators. Mm -hmm. Everything I tell you and everything we're talking about right here, go do your research. Matter of fact, we have a, a white paper on our website. Go grab it for free and we won't even require you to give us your name or email address. Mm -hmm. We're not playing games like that. Go grab the white paper and it'll walk you through 10 things you need to know before you hire a background screening firm. And then go research it or audit your current program. We do audits all the time. We can walk through, we can help you assess and audit a background check and whether or not it's relevant and then go research it. You don't have to just say, well, Mike's just telling me 
that because he wants me to use right, him for background right. checks. We have uh, organizations sometimes that come to us and when they explain everything they're doing and then they tell me who they're using. I know who our best competitors are out there that do things really well. And there's been times I go, you know what? You got a good price and a good program. I can't beat on any of those things. They do it the same way we do it. So if you're happy and you're getting good service, stay where you're at. But that's a rare conversation that we have. Yes. Well, Mike, thank you as always for such a rich time of knowledge, really. And we want to thank our listener uh, that emailed in on that question because it was a good question. And in saying that for our audience, for everyone that's listening, we, you know, we encourage you, please do email Safe Hiring. And if you've got a question or if you have a topic, something that's really, you want some information on, please email us. We can't guarantee that we'll get to every single email, but, but we do encourage you to do that because it really helps us to know too what you want to hear and what the questions you have. Thank you, Mike. And we look forward to our next episode. All right. Have a great weekend. This podcast was sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions. See us at safehiringsolutions.com.